Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. It's the show that brings you the five most important news stories in science. I'm Rowan Hooper, podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor. Welcome to the show. This week we are joined by New Scientist staff writer Graham Lawton. Hello, Graham. Hi. Coming up on the show today, we've got the latest on COVID. We hear about the Glacier Memory Program, which is looking at preserving data from glaciers around the world before they disappear. And we have this. My very firm conviction that we all have the capacity to get into states of mind that we might call evil. That's forensic psychiatrist Gwen Adshead reflecting on human nature, and we'll hear more from her later. We're also hearing about an animal where the male gets pregnant, and while he is, the female will sometimes uh, step out on him, as it were. And we'll catch up on the latest ambitions of the Chinese space program, which is just staffing up its new space station. But first, a reminder that as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Get all the benefits of a subscription, which now includes audio versions of stories from the print magazine. Go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 to subscribe. We start this week with a COVID update. Worldwide, there have been more than 3.8 million deaths now from COVID-19 and 180 million confirmed cases. In the UK, there is a new wave fueled by the Delta variant of the virus, which is more transmissible than variants we've seen before. For this reason, the government is delaying the lifting of restrictions that were put in place to reduce the spread of the virus. England will now keep restrictions in place until the 19th of July and Scotland the same date. So Graham, our expert in all things covid why was this decision made? Well, I, I mean, as you say, no great surprise, the Delta variant. There was some scary computer modelling showing that lifting the final stages of restrictions could lead to another wave of COVID-19, which could, and I think we should emphasise, could be bigger than anything the UK has already seen. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty in the models and the wave could be quite modest, but all of the various computer models predict a surge in infections that could be suppressed somewhat by postponing that final lifting. I mean, the obvious question is how many lives will be saved by doing this? How many hospital admissions will be saved by doing this? Uh, and will there be another wave anyway? Uh, sadly, you know, we just don't know the answer. There are still too many unknowns 
in the models. But what we do know is that the approved vaccines are still really effective. So double vaccination is just over 80% effective against symptomatic disease caused by Delta. That's a bit lower than the Alpha, which is 88%, but it's still a really effective vaccine. So the rationale behind the postponement is to get as many people double vaccinated as possible. Yeah, that's right. I mean, also the full lifting of restrictions would have given the virus extra opportunities to spread. So there would have been no capacity restrictions in pubs and cinemas and theatres. There would have been open nightclubs. There would have been full sports stadiums. There'd be unlimited numbers of guests in people's houses and no limit on guest numbers at weddings and funerals. So actually, it looks like this time the UK Prime Minister has stuck to his pledge to be guided by data, not dates. And we've seen the Delta variant has really taken hold, first of all, in northwest England. And of course, obviously, uh, it was been really devastating in India, where even now there's still 60,000 new cases a day. So do we expect this to delay the release of restrictions in other countries too, the Delta variant? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that. The Delta variant's now been detected in over 80 countries worldwide, and it also underlines just how we have to get these vaccines rolled out worldwide. You know, in Africa, there's been a sharp increase in infections, but hardly any vaccination. What about the recent paper published in the journal The Lancet on um, elimination countries and what they've achieved? What can we learn from that? Yeah, now this was really interesting and a little bit counterintuitive, actually. So an international team compared 37 wealthy nations. Uh, They looked at deaths from COVID-19, they looked at GDP growth, and they looked at the strictness of lockdown measures over the first 12 months of the pandemic, so going back to kind of February last year. And they classified the countries into two groups. There were five elimination countries, which took the maximum action at all times to suppress the outbreak, and the rest, 32 mitigation countries, which kind of reacted to events to stop their health systems from being overwhelmed. Now, people often assume that there's a kind of trade-off between health and wealth and freedom. So you can choose to lock down, but destroy your economy and trample on civil liberties, or you can accept certain levels of deaths in return for economic activity and freedom. But what they found was that elimination countries did miles better on all of those measures. And I mean, miles better. So which are the five elimination countries? So in alphabetical order, Australia, Iceland, Japan, New Zealand and South Korea. Now, they didn't succeed in eliminating the virus, but they set out to do so and they stuck to their guns. So apart from South Korea, which has one very tightly closed land border, all of the other countries that you mentioned are island nations. Yeah, well spotted. They are and because elimination strategies. I mean, South Korea is effectively an island. Um Elimination strategies, which include controlling your borders, are obviously easier to implement if you're an island nation. But it's not impossible for non-island nations to do it. Denmark very nearly got put into the elimination category. And being an island nation doesn't guarantee success. You know, there is an island nation I could mention that did really badly on health, wealth and freedom. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So what are the other elements of an elimination strategy? So they are basically mass testing, uh, supporting infected people to isolate, tracing people who've come into contact with infected people and helping them to isolate to border surveillance and strict and stringent lockdowns when needed, as soon as they're needed. And of course, this uh, analysis was retrospective. Is there anything that we can learn from it and, and apply going forward? Yeah, the pandemic is not over and it won't be for a while yet. And it's never too late to pivot to an elimination strategy. And of course, there may be another pandemic in the post at some point. And now it's time for a space travel update. And the news this week is all about China. 
Yeah, all about China. They've built a new space station and on Thursday morning, the first mission carrying astronauts to it safely docked with the space station. It was three astronauts and it's China's first crewed spaceflight in five years. So pretty big deal um, just in that regard, but also because the three astronauts will actually spend three months on the Tiangong station. And that's the longest China has operated a crewed space mission so far. Yeah, it's all part of their strategy of fast iteration. And that sounds like something like, you know, a startup would do, like a nimble startup sort of language. But um, this is the Chinese Space Agency's method, too. And they've built this space station. It's much smaller than the International Space Station. It's 90 tonnes. The ISS is 420 tonnes. But China is going to be building a bigger one next. So this this one at the moment, Tiangong, it's planned to last for about 10 years. And they've got plans to put a space telescope up there and Tiangong will be able to service this telescope. And that's all tied up with their lunar ambitions too, isn't it? Yeah, and we've been hearing about that this week too. They're going to collaborate with the Russians. Um, They're also going to be sending cosmonauts to Tiangong. And it's all part of the International Lunar Research Station collaboration between Russia and China to build a moon base. Uh, It's going to be at the South Pole. That's where all the good stuff happens at the South Pole of the moon, because there's good places to get water, ice and solar power from there. At the moment, you know, they call it the International Lunar Base. And at the moment, it's just China and Russia. But they are, uh, on paper at least, very open and encouraging other nations to join. There's so much going on in this space right now um, with NASA's Artemis moon program and private space companies also planning moon missions. And the European Space Agency has its own plans and missions in preparation, too. It's a really exciting time. It really is an exciting time. I mean, people were excited in the 60s with the Apollo program, but this is bigger than that. These are the years when we're going to establish a permanent base on the moon. It's really amazing. And China, China's plans are really well advanced. They've got a roadmap for construction for between 2026 and 2035. They have it all mapped out. Uh, the missions, the rockets needed to get up there and start making a fully operational battle station. No, not battle station. Fully operational lunar base. Um, yeah. So, and, uh, you know, as well as that, there's the the retirement of the International Space Station, which is slated for 2024, it could mean Tiangong is the only operational space station we've got. So it's all happening. And, you know, I mentioned the the South Pole. That's where everyone wants to be. And wouldn't it be amazing if the Artemis lunar program from NASA joined up with the International Lunar Research Station and made a truly international lunar base there? Time out, time to tell you about today's sponsor, the Ryman Prize. New Zealand is best known for its spectacular landscapes, rugby and sailing teams, and more recently its best-in-class efforts at eliminating COVID-19. But what you probably didn't know is that New Zealand is also a world leader in its model of care for its ageing population and is home to one of the largest and most significant health prizes. That's the Ryman Prize, which is awarded each year by the Prime Minister of New Zealand, It's a £130,000 cash prize for the best discovery, development, advance or achievement anywhere in the world that enhances the quality of life for older people. As well as the most obvious threat to older people currently, COVID-19, the over 70 population is up against a long list of chronic diseases, including Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's and diabetes. But research into chronic health issues is poorly funded. 
The Ryman Prize aims to help fix this by finding the best and brightest in the world and rewarding them for their efforts. Last year's Ryman Prize was won by world-leading cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's and dementia researcher Professor Maya Kivapelto of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Former winners include Gabby Hollows, Professor Peter St. George Hislop and robotics pioneer Professor Takanori Shibata. Entries for this year's Ryman Prize close on Friday the 16th of July. So if you think you've got what it takes to win the prize, go to RymanPrize.com for more information on entering. Earlier this week, we had the first results from the biggest ever scientific expedition to the Arctic. Yeah, this is something called the Mosaic Expedition, which stands for Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate. Basically, they uh, put a research vessel up there and deliberately get, let it get trapped in sea ice and let it drift around in the sea ice to study what's going on up there. And they, f- they found that the sea ice was retreating faster than ever recorded and that the extent of the summer ice was only half as much as it was a decade ago. And with smaller sea ice surface, more dark ocean is exposed, so the ocean can absorb more heat in the summer, which in turn means that ice sheet formation in the autumn slows down, and you get this really vicious circle of heating. We just wanted to mention this expedition as it's just reporting its first results, and the latest on the melting of the sea ice in the Laptev Sea in Siberia shows it's melting earlier than ever before. Yeah, and obviously we've been seeing heat waves all around the Northern Hemisphere with really dangerous droughts, especially in the southwest United States. And have you seen the temperatures in L.A. at the moment? Absolutely horrendous. Um, But the main thing to talk about today is actually glaciers. Yes, this week in the magazine, we have a feature on the Ice Memory Project, which is a program about archiving and preserving material and data from glaciers and ice cores from glaciers. And talking about the Arctic sea ice, there are similar stories about glaciers, According to a study in 2019, more than 9,000 billion tons of glacier ice was lost between 1961 and 2016. That was a study led by Michael Zemp, director of the World Glacier Monitoring Service, and he describes this as equivalent to an ice block the size of the UK with an average thickness of 44 metres. And that will have added 27 millimetres to the average global sea level. Yeah. That that blows my mind. An ice block the size of the UK with a thickness of 44 metres. I mean, you know, you, you think you understand the problem of and the extent of melting ice. And, you know, we've seen those images of, you know, time lapse images of alpine regions and a glacier, you know, a few decades ago and what it looks like now. But that's just a whole new way of putting it. It is absolutely staggering when you kind of manage to get your head around it like that. Yeah. And this program is all about capturing data from that ice before it disappears. Yeah, because they're they're literally time capsules, aren't they? And that's one of the coolest things about glaciers is the way they build up over thousands of years. You get them when snow falls on like a mountaintop or something and the amount that settles exceeds what melts. So it builds up and up and the snow at the bottom actually gets compacted into glacial ice from all the pressure uh, on top from the snow. And that means the deeper you go, the older that ice is. And stuff gets trapped down there, effectively like fossils, you know, preserved for tens of thousands of years. And if you go to the massive ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, some of the ice dates back hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, You know, so sometimes bodies pop out of them, (laughs) which is, you know, a bit of a morbid turn. We'll wait until the discussion later. But... um, (laughs) You know, we had Otzi the Iceman. He, he, you know, he was killed uh, and trapped in ice more than 5,000 years ago. Yeah, there are all sorts of, uh, again, a bit morbid, but all sorts of dead bodies thawing out, often well-preserved, 
but not really the stuff you'd necessarily want to, you know, stumble across, like reindeer riddled with anthrax spores or ancient <laughs> dead people. Yeah. But but actually, it's these ancient relics trapped in the ice for millennia that the Ice Memory Project is all about. Not so much dead bodies, but bits of dust and even pockets of air and chemicals and whatever can give scientists clues to all sorts of things that have been going on far into the Earth's past. Like what? Um, there are all sorts of things, which we go into great detail in, in the piece, but it's all perfectly preserved in these glaciers that are now melting. So there's a real urgency to this project. Yeah, there is a real urgency to get these samples before they disappear and also to act. Well, obviously, we know we have to act to stop emissions and try and slow the ice melt. Yeah, the loss of glaciers is causing a lot of problems. A lot of rural communities in South America and Central Asia rely on seasonal ice melt for water in the dry season. And that ice is disappearing. And on that note, we'll leave it. But do check out the piece on ice mem- on the Ice Memory Programme and we'll post a link in the show notes. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, and this week it's seahorses, which are of course <laughs> which are of course fish, not never mind. Not horses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they are very lovely looking fish. They're lovely looking and they're really interesting because they're a great example of sex role reversal. Uh, this is a term from zoology that means a situation where the typical functions that you associate with one sex are switched to the other one. And in this case, The female lays eggs inside the male in a special brood pouch and he broods them until they hatch. And so and then he looks after the young. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing male pregnancy in in a few more species, uh, in (laughs) fact. Um, But the story this week isn't actually about that, is it? No, it's it's about fidelity and the limits to monogamy in seahorses. And this is something quite nice about them is they usually form pair bonds that last for months or even sometimes years. And the male and female live you know, quite close together and they meet up at daylight and they have what's called morning greetings time. Uh, that's not a euphemism, I don't think. It's just like <laughs> an actual greeting. Um, they reinforce that this pair bond. They swim along in parallel and, and they brighten their hues and they even dance together. Oh, that sounds so nice. Yeah. So what happens is the couple... They mate quite actively, except when the male is pregnant for about 12 to 20 days. And when he's um, done with that and he gives birth to his brood, they start mating again. And the the female generally doesn't shag around during that time that he's pregnant. To use the technical term. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, she's, yeah, well, yeah, she, she stays faithful to that male. And scientists have now figured out that it's his scent that keeps her faithful. And it, they did experiments that either block this, these morning greetings or the sight of the male or his odour. And they found that it was the smell that keeps her faithful. Isn't that so often what keeps the romance alive? <laughs> Speak for yourself. Um, yeah. In the, <laughs> in the, so in the experiment, three quarters of the females that hadn't been able to smell their mates chose another male to mate with instead of the one who'd uh, just given birth to her children. Or maybe she forgot his scent during that time and fancied a different male. Now, we report a lot on advances in understanding of the human brain from like either a neuroscientific level, but also from a psychiatric level. In other words, how understanding how the brain works and how it goes wrong sometimes and causes mental illness. 
So I was really excited this week to speak with Gwen Adshead, who's a forensic psychiatrist and psychotherapist. She's been working for more than 30 years with some very ill people who've committed terrible crimes. And very commonly, you'll see them described as monsters. But she's been working to understand them and to treat them. And I first asked her about the title of her new book, The Devil You Know. And I asked her if it's if she's suggesting we all have the capacity for evil deeds. I think what we were trying to get at was two things, really. One is um, my very firm conviction that we all have the capacity to get into states of mind that we might call evil, but also that it's better probably that we understand those aspects of ourselves that we might call evil, that it's better to know about them than avoid them or exclude them. And in fact, that the more we know about our own inner devils, perhaps the better able we are to act in ways that might help people and help ourselves. I mean, we had a former British Prime Minister, John Major, saying society needs to condemn a little more and understand a little less. That was the Prime Minister saying, you know, what did it what did it make you feel when when he said that? When he said that, it was very upsetting to to me and my colleagues. And we discussed it at great length in different places because it's always been part of social care for people with offenders with mental illnesses and indeed prisoners generally. It's always been a very important part of social policy that we provide rehabilitation. And we do this, at least in part, because it's in all our interests that this happens. So what we're fighting against, I think, is a... I think what is a minority but loud voice, which says, no, we don't want to understand, we want to punish and we want to take revenge. And while I understand, completely understand the emotions behind that position, I think that it's probably not feasible or workable in the long term, because it's in all our interests that people who've offended get some help to become safer in terms of not only their mental health, but in terms of their risk to others. I think the other thing people might shrink from is the idea that we all have the capacity for for evil or for doing violent things or very dangerous things. Yes, well, the idea that we all have the capacity to do acts of great cruelty is, is you know goes back to medieval times, if not before. So it's not really a new idea at all. But I've drawn on the work of a colleague of mine called Peter Aylward, who really first came up with this idea that that capacity or that potential to get um, into evil states of mind really requires a number of factors to, to be present. And in the book, we set out how the risk factors for violence include very general things like being young and male, which are not much helpful really, in terms of assessment or intervention, because it's far far too general. But rather specific, more specific kinds of risk factors then could be additive to risk. So if you add in substance misuse, if you add in some kinds of paranoid mental illness, and then if you add in kinds of extremes of exposure to childhood trauma without any support, then you can get to a situation where all these risk factors pile in and add a kind of level of stress. And then the last risk factor that, as it were, opens the lock and unleashes the violence is often something rather specific to the offender. Um, And it can be something that the victim does, which is in no way to blame the victim for what happens. But it may be that the victim doesn't realise that what they're doing or saying is having a kind of very specific psychological impact on the perpetrator who then acts violently. So what we're trying to do here is to think about violence as complex rather than simple. But in the book, you've 
you make the point that you've deliberately made it gender balanced in the number of, of case studies that you talk about. So can you explain why you've done that? So Eileen and I discussed this at some length, but in the end, we decided that it was really important that the voices of women offenders did not get lost. One of the problems for women who commit acts of violence is that because they're such a minority, many of the services provided in prison are not particularly gender reflective or sensitive. So I thought it was important that women's voices the voices of women offenders and the needs that they have for different kinds of therapy and the, and the particularly support for their offences had proper attention paid to it. We've written before in New Scientist about how using physiological and neurological measures can predict sometimes which patients will respond to which kinds of treatments. What's the latest on that? What's, say, on, on brain imaging for diagnosis and treatment? I think when it comes to violence, it's complicated because violence itself is complicated. So if you do neuroimaging of people who've committed violent offences, the difficulty is that not all violent offenders are the same. And also you don't quite know who you're getting in terms of sampling bias because not everybody who's violent goes to prison, for example. So the neuroimaging when it comes to violence is, I think, still you know, very much active work in progress, although interesting work in progress. When it comes to therapy, I think we're beginning to see some very interesting work around neuroimaging showing how brains respond to psychological therapies and showing how you can get different levels of action in different parts of the brain. And so I'm certainly aware of several studies that have shown changes in brain function in response to psychological therapies. And that's really important for us to take seriously because it supports our clinical experience that people's minds can and do change with therapy. But then the question is now is, as you say, who is most likely to benefit I want to ask you about the role of genetics in mental illness. And, uh, you know, there's loads of literary references in the book. So I want to quote some Shakespeare at you and you can probably guess what's coming. Um, it's a line from The Tempest that's uh, it's always stuck with me. Um, it's when Prospero says of Caliban, he's a born devil on whose nature nurture can never stick. And that <laughs> seems that seems to me that Shakespeare is saying that Caliban is genetically evil What's your take on this and, and in general about the role of genetics? And of course, we have uh, Shakespeare to thank for the phrase nature and nurture with which or to blame um, yeah. because, it, because that dichotomous way of thinking about things has been an absolute curse, really, because it's, it's absolutely clear from the research. And this is over and over and over again, that nature and nurture interact. And I'm sure you you and other listeners will be very well aware about the whole study of epigenetics, where we understand how environments impinge on how genes are expressed. And so the interaction of an environment with a genetic vulnerability can then change that gene to express itself in different ways. But when it comes to violence, we have no genes for violence. There are no genes for behaviours because violence and behaviours arise from the human mind. What's, uh, what's your motivation behind the book and what do you hope people will take away from it? We set out to make this book a kind of invitation to come and see a world that people don't often want to look at, the world after the judge is sentenced, after the jail doors have shut, um, after people have been admitted to secure settings. What happens then? And we invite, I want people to come and see what I see and to learn 
to learn what I've learned is that there is real potential for, for change and rehabilitation and to see how hopeful we can be when we provide good quality services to people who've done terrible things. That was Rowan speaking with forensic psychiatrist Gwen Adshead about her work and her new book, The Devil You Know. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us and thanks to our regular guest, Graham Lawton. Remember, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20, and that gives you audio versions of Mag Stories 2. And that's it. Thanks again, and see you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.